Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord... Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Zach. We are in the middle of a series this fall looking at the Minor Prophets. We have said repeatedly that the minor prophets are not minor because of their significance. They're minor just simply because of their size. They're some of the smaller books uh, in the Old Testament and all of Scripture. Last week, we saw 21 verses of Obadiah. This week, four short chapters uh, of Jonah. But there is nothing light and minor about the messages that are given to us by the minor prophets. They're known historically in the Hebrew text as the twelve the twelve repeatedly say uh, to us, repent and turn to the Lord. They say to humanity, they say to those uh, within the church and outside of the church, uh, there is something between you and God. And the only way to come back into right relationship with God is through Christ the Savior uh, who took on the wrath of God, who uh, had it fully meted out upon him so that we never would. 
We've seen it in the beauty uh, of uh, the stories that, uh, that come with, uh, with Gomer, who uh, was sold into slavery, that she was covered, that she was brought back by the love of the Lord. It's the picture of redemption. It's the picture of God's love for us. It's the story in Amos where there's the threatening at the end of the book, inviting those who want to stand against the Lord to come and to stand in the valley of decision and see if they can make it through that battle with God. And we know that Christ stood in our place and that he was killed and crushed for us. So last week in Obadiah, looking at the picture of the wrath of God in, in, in a cup that Jesus said that he drank fully so that we never would. There is a richness to the minor prophets. There's a beauty. There's a gravitas to them. There's a challenge within each of them. And this week is no different in Jonah. Probably the most familiar of all the minor prophets. Uh, you learned the stories maybe as a child in uh, Sunday school where uh, you had your uh, velvet uh, whale and it was up on the wall and little Jonah was on his velvet boat and he got tossed off and he got eaten by the whale and he was in the whale's belly for three uh, days and then he got spit up onto the beach and he went and preached in Nineveh and you're like, oh, that's a cute little story. It's no way that it really happened because people can't live in the bellies of whales for three days. Uh, and whales aren't even indigenous to the Mediterranean. Uh, and so uh, I'm sure this is just a wonderful fable, like most of Scripture, uh, but I'm still supposed to believe in Jesus. Well, folks, that's not how Jesus understood the story. We're going to see in the sermon this morning that Jesus looks back uh, on Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, and he says, I'm the true Jonah. Jonah actually happened, but I actually do more than, the true, than that Jonah did. Uh, that was a historic story. I consider it so. And if you have a hard time uh, believing that God can uh, take a man, throw him into the ocean, and have a fish under his command keep him alive for three days, you're going to have a very difficult time uh, believing that God could destroy his own son, send him into the grave, and raise him from the dead in three days' time. So when people go, oh, I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe in Jonah, I said, no, you have actually a problem with all those things. And so we come today and we're going to look at what does this story of Jonah really teach us? And there is an entire series in Jonah, by the way. To do this in, in a one-off is a challenge. So as I sat with it and was considering it and going, I, I came back over and over and over again to one verse. And it's one verse that actually wasn't read to you. And it comes from chapter 2. Uh, it's a verse from inside the, the belly of the fish. Uh, when Jonah has recognized uh, what he has done, he is coming back to the Lord in uh, what many believe is repentance, at least is coming back to the Lord uh, and considering the things that he's done and considering who God is. And he finishes that prayer right before uh, he's put back up on the beach. He finishes the prayer in chapter 2 in verses 8 and 9 with these words. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the key verse of Jonah. The understanding of all of Jonah is wrapped up within that one singular verse. And I would, 
I would present to you today that that may be the key verse of all of Scripture. That salvation belongs to the Lord. That any misunderstanding of that statement, that salvation belongs to me and the Lord, that salvation belongs to us and the Lord, that salvation belongs to the Lord plus something else, it throws off every single bit of your understanding of Christianity. It throws off your understanding of who God is. It obviously shows a misunderstanding of who we are. It means that we have a bad theology and a bad anthropology. Our theology, our understanding of God is flawed, and our understanding of humanity is flawed. And when you bring those two flawed understandings together, you have a flawed gospel. And if there's a flawed gospel, there is no salvation. And so it's unbelievably important for us to spend a few minutes this morning considering this salvation is from the Lord. So I'm going to give you a few things to think about today, and then we're going to come and we're going to celebrate this table. We're going to celebrate the truth that Jesus said, I had to be cast into the waters of God's judgment. I had to go down and there was no whale to save me. There was no fish to save me. I simply was submerged. I was crushed into the depths. And I was raised on the third day. And in that, all those who have faith in me, not in me plus anything, but in me alone, will be saved. That's why we come to this table. That's why we consider these things. And so the first thing is just the title of the sermon. Salvation is from the Lord. It is that key verse And what we need to understand within that salvation is from the Lord uh, is first and primarily this, that we need salvation. The person sitting in your chair today, not the person you're elbowing, not the person you are already considering in your mind, but the person seated in your chair today needs salvation was in desperate need of salvation. And what that means is underneath it, uh, there is an assumption that we can't save ourselves, uh, that salvation has to come from outside uh, of us. And so to be able to say salvation is exclusively from the Lord, like Jonah did, we must first understand our need of salvation, that we need to be saved from something. And most would say we need to be saved from our sin, and that is true, but ultimately we need to be saved from the wrath of God towards our sin. We need to be saved not just because of the act of sin or from our position against God towards sin, but we really need to be saved from God, that we need to be saved from the judgment of God. That's what he said to Nineveh. He said, you need to be concerned about me. You need to be concerned that there's going to be punishment coming in 40 days if you don't do something, because I have something against you. And so we look, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to go back to a teaching that I learned many, 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 many years ago, and it, it helped shape how I understand the world and understand any uh, group that I talk to. We usually think of people in two categories. There are Christians and non-Christians. And that is true, but within the category of non-Christians, there are two categories. There's really three kinds of people within the world. There are irreligious people, there are religious people, and then there are Christians. The irreligious person may be some of you who are here today say, I have no need of any of this. I came today simply to appease the person that I'm sitting with. They asked me to come. I said, yes, we're going out to brunch afterwards. I didn't want to pick up the tab. So here I am. I'm coming to church. I see no real need of it. I'm living my life. God leaves me alone. I leave him alone. Uh, All is good. 
I was reconnected with a, a friend uh, recently, and we were talking about his life's journey. And at 14 years of age, he was invited uh, to go work in a restaurant, and it was on a Sunday morning. And he looked at his parents, and he said, I'm going to go work in the restaurant. And his mother said, but we're supposed to go to church. And his father said, it's good for you to earn a living. And he's never been back to church again. He sees absolutely no need for Christianity. He sees absolutely no need for any uh, religion. He would be irreligious. But then there's the who says they don't, they don't think they have any need of salvation. Then there's the religious person. The religious person believes that they have a need of salvation, but that they're the source of their salvation. That maybe you're here today and you're in that category, that by the very presence of being in church today, you are somehow garnering the favor or salvation of God because you did some bad things last night, you did some things, and now you're here, and through penance and through good works and good deeds and from your own righteousness, you are going to make God go, fine, we're good. That's the religious person. Salvation is a product of their own design. And then there's the third category, which is salvation belongs exclusively to the Lord. So within all of those, there is a common need. And the common greatest need of all humanity is the understanding of the nature of sin. If we just divide the world between good people and bad people, we miss the heart of sin. The essence of sin at its very heart, friends, is not trusting God. The essence of sin is not that you were angry, it's not that you had premarital sex, it's not that you stole, it's not that you lied, it's not that you coveted, it is at the very core a distrust in who God is. Adam and Eve distrusted God. They said, you must be keeping something from us. You've told us that we can have all of this good stuff, but you've said that one tree uh, we can't have. Therefore, Satan playing on that, uh, they said, you must be withholding. You are then not good. And the essence of sin at the very heart is a belief that God is not good. It's a not trusting in him. It is making something else non-negotiable. It's saying, I have to have the fruit of that tree in order to be. I have to have this relationship. I have to have this job. I have to have this house. I have to have whatever it is. I have to have that. And then I'll be content, then I'll be whole, then I will find that glory that I have lost, that righteousness that I know that I was designed for, that whole uh, that Augustine said, that gospel-filled whole, that God-filled whole, uh, shaped whole. I know that it will be filled with these other things. It's finding our identity in something other than God. But friends, here's what the Scripture says, and here's what happened at the beginning of this book and all of the prophets. All of the prophets begin, or, or most of them begin, with a statement of calling. A statement of calling. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. He was called to be a prophet. It was God speaking into him and saying, this is who you are. It was God validating. It was God calling. It was God saying, this is who you are. And it was God identifying us through his calling. Adam and Eve were called by God to worship, tend, and serve. That Abraham was called by God to be the father of a great nation. He was identified that way. Moses to lead his people. Even Jesus, in essence, was called by God. The voice speaking from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he went out from there knowing who he was in relationship to God. That purpose and validation are always externally generated. 
Now, that's not a popular thing today. We want to say, oh, I can find my purpose within myself. But friends, that's actually not the case. We find our purpose, we find our identity, find the very true essence of who we are by what God has to say about us. And for Jonah, God said, you are my mouthpiece. You are my prophet. You are the one who is going to go and speak on my behalf. And we don't get to determine that. We're too limited for that. And what we saw in Jonah was his need of salvation came because at the very beginning he didn't like the calling on his life. He wasn't trying to run from uh, the presence of God, as one pastor put it, in spatial terms. Jonah gives a a great description. He goes uh, to the sailors on the boat in chapter 1 when he got on the boat and he went and he was going to go to Tarshish. And by the the way, if you have done your uh, uh, looking at geography, you know that Tarshish, not Tarsus, where Paul was from, but Tarshish uh, was an outpost all the way over in Spain. So here is a Jewish man uh, who's a landlubber. Jews didn't enjoy getting on the open ocean. The Sea of Galilee was about all they wanted and needed. Uh, but to get in the open ocean wasn't something that they did. That was the Phoenicians. That, uh, those were uh, the Philistines. Those were all kinds of other people uh, who loved doing that, but not them. And this guy wanted to get away from, interesting, it says the presence of the Lord in your translation. But in the Hebrew, it says from the face of the Lord. He said, I don't want to be in relationship with you anymore. I need to get out of your space. I need to get out of relationship with you. I need to go as far away because I do not like, I don't trust that who you've called me to be is who I should be. And so I'm going to go away. Uh, I'm going to go, even knowing who you are, I'm still going to go away. He was denying who God called him to be. And that is at the very heart of the sin Uh, that he was experiencing. Nineveh was a great city. It was a profound city. It was the city uh, that was established by Sennacherib, the uh, ruler of Assyria. It was about 40 miles outside of modern-day Mosul. It was on the banks of the Tigris River. Uh, It was a a city that uh, had a castle in it uh, that was, its palace was somewhere around 10 times the size of Buckingham Palace. Uh, Its overall estate of the palace itself uh, was the size of Versailles. Uh, and larger. It had canals and walls with 18 gates in it. It was incredible. It was a city that unfortunately missed the very calling of what humanity is about. Humanity isn't called to make its own kingdoms. It's called to make the kingdom of God. And so they were denying, as a sense, who they were. That they were created by God, designed by God, for God. All humanity, at the end of the day, is looking for its purpose. Each of us is looking for our purpose. That's why the book, The Purpose Driven Life, was such a popular book. What's my purpose in life? What, why am I here? What's my design? What, what's my calling? What, what is God saying? And the only place to find it, because culture is going to change that constantly. But God says, you were called, you were designed to be in relationship with me. That's your purpose for the end of man or the purpose of man. What is the chief purpose and end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That our lives only find purpose and meaning in relationship to him. And Jonah was running from God's call. Jonah was running from God's call. 
And what we see about this salvation that is from the Lord is that it is always initiated by God. Jonah wasn't looking for God. He was actually trying to get away from God. And look what God does. Friends, I want you to hear this. God pursues. You serve a God who pursues. If you're here today, uh, you are now stepping and tipping your toe into a relationship with a God who pursues. And I just want you to know that. That is both terrifying and glorious all at the same time. That God pursues. God is the one who called Jonah. Jonah didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I want to go be a prophet. God called Jonah as a prophet. And then when, God, when Jonah was heading out to sea, God pursued him. And he came and he said, I need you to go to Nineveh. Go to a city that didn't know that it needed God. A city that was perfectly content. But God loved the people of Nineveh so much that he initiated the plan of salvation in their lives to send his word there so that they would hear it. It's God who is constantly initiating salvation, and it is God uh, who is the one at the very heart of salvation for us. So let me ask the question then, the second point, if you're considering points. The second thing would be, uh, yes, first thing, God uh, is the one. He is the heart of salvation. It is Salvation is from God uh, alone. The second is that God gloriously sends storms into our lives to get our attention. He gloriously sends storms into our lives to get our attention. Jonah was on a boat, and he was asleep, by the way, uh, in there. He didn't really care uh, that he was there in the middle uh, of a storm, uh, most likely what would have been equivalent to a hurricane in the way that they, uh, it says that the tempest, and it was a tempestuous ocean, and the winds were blowing, and the ship was going down, and the sailors recognized that they were going to die, and God was calling, and he was doing all of this to get the attention, yes, of Jonah, but also of the sailors. The sailors were, were irreligious men. Or they were religious because they understood at least something about their pagan religion. Uh, you, did, you found very few irreligious people in Jonah's day. Most were religious. And they came and God was pursuing them. He sent the storm. He sent a storm to Nineveh in a sense of saying in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. Interesting use of the word there. The word overthrown is actually the word transformed. In 40 days you're going to be transformed. And it's interesting, after Nineveh repented, which we'll get to in a second, they experienced the next hundred years was the greatest hundred years in the history of the Assyrian Empire. Fascinating that the blessings of God come even to that people there. He sent a scorching wind to Jonah to get his attention. Friends, I guess the question is this. In your life, as you're considering how God is pursuing you, what storms are going on? What are things that are happening that are trying to get your attention? To try to get you to ask the question, what am I doing that may be causing me to flee from the very presence of God or to add to salvation or to, to not do what God has called me to do or not love whom God has called me to love? Uh, how is it that God's trying to get my attention today? And when storms come, very often we respond uh, in, in hatred towards God. I can't believe you would do this. We respond in questioning of God, of his goodness, when the most gracious and incredibly good thing that God did to the sailors, to Jonah, and to Nineveh was the storms and the pursuit of them through difficulty. So when that comes, when we recognize God is trying to get our attention, how do we properly respond? And the only unreasonable response 
is to repent. One option, as I said, that's available to us uh, for, is for people, Christians included, to resent God for sending the storms. But the purpose of God's discipline is always to lead us back to him and into a right relationship with him. Look at the three different people or the three different people groups. The sailors repented. Jonah repented actually twice. We'll look at that. And Nineveh repented. The sailors came in verse one, or chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. said, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood. Uh, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging, and the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Jonah inside uh, the fish's belly prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look on your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head as at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever, yet you brought me up, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Nineveh's response. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor taste anything. Let them not drink food or, or water, uh, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then some believe, and I would agree, that I think Jonah's second response and second repentance is the writing of the book. Jonah's the author of this book. No one would write this book except to say, I want you to learn from me. I want you to see what I learned. And what I learned is you can't run away from the Lord. What I learned is that don't be like I was, sitting uh, with derision towards the Lord, but repent and turn and come to the Lord. And so what we find is this. The Lord saves. I don't know who you relate to in the book. Maybe at sometimes you relate to the guys in Nineveh, the families and the people in Nineveh. Sometimes you may relate to uh, the sailors. Sometimes uh, you may relate to Jonah. But here's the good news. God saved sailors, and he saved Jonah, and he saved Nineveh. Some would say he even saved a whole bunch of animals in Nineveh. He said, shouldn't I be concerned for 100,000 people and all the beasts in there? He basically says, I love to save. And the word that he uses twice in this scripture is the word chesed. It's the word covenant faithfulness. It's the word that Jonah used when he said, God, I know 
that if we forsake you for idols, we miss your faithful covenant love, your grace. God always saves through grace. And that he said, it's amazing. This grace isn't just for people who are in the church, but it's people who are outside of the church. He said, that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew that your hesed, your grace, would be sufficient even for the Ninevites. And so salvation is not based on our works, including even our works of repentance. What we find is that salvation for Jonah, the sailors, and for Nineveh, for all who believe, is based on the once-for-all completed work of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's why we come and we come to this table, as I mentioned at the beginning. People go, I don't understand, Jonah, it's a wonderful story. Well, Jesus wrote this, or said this, in chapter 12 of Matthew. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to him and said, Teacher, we want a sign. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is this. It is salvation of the Lord, from the Lord, through the Lord, to us, not based on us. So I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you have been doing. I don't know if you're running from the Lord today. I don't know if you know that God is calling you to himself. I don't know that you, uh, maybe you're in a season of being running away from him and you're stepping back in, uh, but I want you to know this, because you're hearing this voice, uh, my voice today from his word, it's a grace to you. Uh, maybe you're an Ninevite. Maybe you're saying, I don't have anything to do with them, uh, but I, I'm just here today, and I want you to hear this. God is incredibly gracious to you because he sent his son in our place to stand in our place to take on the wrath that was ours. Water in Scripture very often depicts judgment. In Jonah, it was the water of judgment around. In Noah and the ark, it was the water that was the judgment, and it said that the, the ark was covered in pitch. And that word in the Hebrew, when translated into the Greek, is the same word that we get the word propitiation, the covering from wrath. It was saying that Christ is our covering from the very wrath of God. And so that we come in and we're not touched by it, but that we receive this thing that we could never have imagined, but the thing that we most desperately need. I sat with this, this book this week, the last couple of weeks, actually. And we're saying, Lord, what is it that we need to know? For some, you need to just hear that. That salvation is from the Lord. And that it's available to you. You're not too far gone. Nineveh was a nasty city, by the way. They did some unbelievably horrible things. But God, rich in mercy, had a desire to save them. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you've done. But I know this. That the Lord is reaching out, and while you still have breath, respond. If you've already responded to uh, the Lord, as Jonah had, uh, you need to respond again and again, because guess what? Jonah didn't quite get it the first time, did he? He said, okay, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. He preached in Nineveh a five-word sermon, by the way. Five words in the Hebrew. So basically, in 40 days, you're all going to get destroyed. Some of you are wishing I would have a five-word sermon. And uh, maybe I should have this morning. 
come up and said, I'm just going to preach Jonah's sermon to you this morning. 40 days, you're all going to be destroyed. But no. He came and he preached, and then he moped. He hated that God was gracious to people other than himself and his people. And he had to be reminded. And so for some of us, we need the continual reminder from Jonah of God's great salvation. And what we see in that, and how we live in light of this great salvation, what we recognize is that the grace of God confronts, it confronts our prejudice. Let me ask you a simple question. Who's your Nineveh? Who are your Ninevites? Who are the people that you're going, I don't care if they're saved or not. I would just assume them experience the wrath of God. And God's saying, maybe those are the people who we need to go towards. It confronts our fear. It confronts our pride and self-righteousness. And it creates within us a humility, a hope, and a courage. And so we obey. What it does for us is we obey what God's called us to do. And friends, for us as a church and for individuals within the church, we say that we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to transform lives. Here's the deal. We're a church on mission. And so we are surrounded by a culture that is just like Nineveh. It needs to hear the good news. And guess who has the message to go? It's us. And so we obey and we go. And we go and we love the ones who God has called us to love. So today, as we come to this table, I want you to be reminded of God's incredible love for you. I don't know if you're Jonah or an Ninevite. I don't know if you're a sailor or where you are in the spectrum of religious, irreligious, or Christian who just needs to be encouraged and reminded today. But I want you to come to this table. Because as I said before, and I can't say enough, we just don't have the categories to think about it. Jesus Christ said basically this. When I came and took on human flesh, when I came and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and then when I was crushed, when I went to the cross, there is no fathoming what I went through for you. Jonah's description of going to the deep makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up of how terrifying that must have been for him. But for the terror of Christ, who went into the very deeps of, depths of God's wrath for us with no fish to save him, he was simply crushed. But he said, I did it lovingly for you. He said, this is my life, my body that is given for you. Take and eat it. And in a similar way, after the meal, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink it. For you see, if you come to the Lord through Christ, there's no wrath. Isn't that great news? There's none left. There's simply Christ. But if you try to approach the Lord in any other way, he confronts you. And my friends, my invitation would be never stand before God without Christ. That's the invitation of this table. So you're invited to come if you're a follower of Christ today to this table. This is the Lord's table. If you profess faith in him and him alone, uh, come.
If you need to take a few moments and just consider for a little bit, maybe, man, I've been running. But Lord, today I want to come back and sit, but then come and be nourished in this meal. Come and consider the very weight of what it means, of what it cost Christ. And so the way that we do it each week is we come forward into the middle aisles and to the side. You take the elements, go sit, and then on your own take them. I'm not going to invite you to take them later. Just on your own as you feel the Spirit leading you, take those elements. This morning we're going to do a little differently. We've done it before. I'm going to invite the Albert family to come up first and serve uh, Michael his first communion and pray with them. And then when I've finished that, I'll invite the rest of you to come. There's a gluten-free option for you if you need that. And if you need someone to bring it to you, you can ask somebody near you or just raise your hand and one of our elders will bring uh, the elements to you in your seat. But let's now come uh, to the Lord this morning uh, at his table. Let's pray uh, together this prayer. The peace of the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The gift of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this meal. We thank you that you have done everything for us and that there is nothing that we can do. Thank you for the sign of Jonah. That for some of us we sit and we don't believe that there's any need of a Savior. For others, we've known Christ, but we've been running away from Him. Maybe we've been ashamed of Him, moving away from who we are. And Father, I pray that we would be drawn back in today. Father, for others whose life is vibrant in Christ, I pray that this would be an encouragement to them as they faithfully go out and love whom you love and obey as you have called us to obey. I pray that it would be strengthening and renewal in their lives. But Father, now set aside these elements from their common and ordinary use to this, their sacred use of your table as we pray in Christ's name.